Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. In this episode, we talk to Nick Saver, a cultural anthropologist who studies music recommender systems. We will be looking at taste, algorithms, and the relationships people form with and through these apps. So stay tuned and listen. It's going to be a really exciting episode. Nick, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be on. First question that we have is one that we ask every single guest that we have on here, and it's a pretty basic question. But in your own definition, what is anthropology? What is anthropology? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. No, yeah, nobody knows. It's a uh, no. It's it's in a sort of limited sense. It's the study of people, uh, which seems fairly straightforward until you realize that people do uh, just about anything you can imagine, because most of the things that you can imagine. The reason you can imagine them is because of some other person. Uh, so I like to tell uh, my students a line, actually, from the anthropologist Ward Goodenough, who died a few years ago. But in a, in a sort of a retrospective piece he wrote for the Annual Review of Anthropology, he talked about how he got into the field. And his father was a linguist or something like that. Uh, and he had said, you know, uh, Dad, I don't know what I want to do. I'm kind of interested in, in anything. And his dad said to him, uh, he said, well, maybe you should try anthropology. And he goes, oh, well, what's that? And he's like, well, as I understand it, it means you can study anything and it's all right. <laughs> so I like that as my definition of anthropology. It's more or less the study of, of anything. Yeah, that's what I actually love about anthropology as well, is that there's so many areas that you can go into in that. Um, so I guess our next question is, is, what type of technologies do you particularly are interested in? Uh, sure. So... Uh, trying to think of whether I should go from the narrow to the large or the other way around. Uh, let's go large to narrow. Uh, I've sort of over the course of my career been interested specifically in uh, media technologies uh, and more specifically in media technologies that are used to uh, to produce, to reproduce, and to circulate sound. Uh, often that means specifically music. Uh, so before I became an anthropologist, I uh, was doing a media studies degree and I uh, did some research on the history of the player piano, so the, the yeah. quote-unquote self-playing piano, uh, and was interested in questions about, you know, how people think about uh, human expressivity in relationship to technology, using music as an interesting case for thinking through uh, sort of ideologies of humanness and machineness. Uh, and in my more recent work, uh, what I've done is an ethnographic study of people who build algorithmic recommender systems for music. So these are the kinds of things that say, you know, do you, if you like this artist, you might like this other artist. Uh, and interestingly, although they seem to be sort of polar opposites from each other, uh, algorithmic recommender systems and player pianos have a lot in common because they raise a lot of the same issues around, you know, what does it mean for something to be really human, uh, expressive? Uh, are your preferences for music so uh, ineffably human that a computer could never understand them? Or uh, are they not? Are they something that a computer could actually sort of calculate and adequately uh, predict? 
I have so many questions about the connection of music and humans and machines, but I'm going to park that until we go into the that bit a bit later. Um, I wonder if you could tell our listeners a bit about your own path with anthropology and and also answer a question around wh when is the moment when you yourself defined yourself as an anthropologist? Oh, man. Yeah. So let's see. So my academic history is that when I was an undergraduate, I was a literature major, uh, was interested in literary theory and all of that kind of stuff. I was a humanist. Uh, and then, too, I was kind of interested in music and technology questions. I wrote, ended up writing a thesis on um, the history of, of noise music, so music that's intentionally uh, noisy and this sort of paradoxical, this sort of paradoxical genre of music and its relationship to audio reproduction techniques. So what happens to something that uh, we think of as being noise, as being uh, non sense when it's actually possible to sort of reproduce it precisely as it was made. And it turns out that uh, sort of while I was writing that as an undergraduate, an anthropologist named David Novak uh, was working on a book called Japanoise, uh, which is about the noise music scene in uh, Japan and gets into these questions in a much more fulfilling way because it's extremely ethnographic. It's about how the actual people doing this stuff do it. Yeah. So I went, I went from that from that sort of music and technology uh, origin point uh, around and I ended up in a media studies program at uh, MIT at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which was a really fun and strange little position to be in because it was in a technical university where most of the people there are engineers, and we were this neat little sort of humanities slice uh, in the university. So I actually got a Master of Science uh, from there, even though it was in a humanities field, because the school isn't even accredited to give a Master's of Arts degree. So I had to be uh, a science degree. <laughs> And it was, it was it was fun. You know, I we were I was in classes with people doing all sorts of cool media studies stuff. They were studying video games. They were studying documentary. They were studying newspapers and television ads and all sorts of stuff. Uh, and going out from there, I said, okay, you know, I want to keep doing this research. I did that that thesis on the player piano I mentioned. Uh, and I said, you know, I like these questions, but I would really like to talk to people now. I want I want to. You know, I want people to sort of like respond to me because it was a little lonely to do archival research for me uh, on historical stuff. And I said, okay, well, what's the thing that exists right now uh, that has these sort of concerns in it? And I just thought, you know, oh, music recommendation, that's a thing, right? Uh, so I applied to PhD programs. Only, I think only one of the PhD programs, I maybe applied to seven or so, were was an anthropology program. And other ones were things, you know, media studies, uh, STS, science, science and technology studies, uh, and so on. And the, at the end, I was sort of deciding between a couple programs, one of which was located in Southern California and the other one of which was located in upstate New York. And my uh, partner uh, said, you know, if you're 50-50 between living sort of in the woods, uh, I would like to live on the beach. And then I became an anthropologist because I went to an anthropology <laughs> program. Um, and I've been quite happy with it, uh, in spite of it becoming, being, you know, sort of an accident. In retrospect, it looks inevitable. It looks like, oh, of course, I was always going to become this kind of anthropologist, but, uh, but it certainly wasn't. Um, and I'm glad, I'm glad it turned out this way. From your perspective uh, in this kind of uh, space, what type of um, relationships people develop with technology through music um, or uh, with music through technology? Wow. Uh, well, yeah, that's a good question. I suppose they, they, they develop... And, yeah, and, you, and maybe before more. that, how do you define music? What is music to you? Oh my goodness! <laughs> uh, yeah, so there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot there. Uh, let's go. We can start on the music end first. I'm a fairly uh, I'm a loose guy with my definitions in general. Uh, so music, I usually go with something along the lines of you know organized sound. If you had to ask me to make one myself, because I'm sort of enth uh, enthusiastic about 
experimental efforts to figure out sort of what things that people don't think of as music could be music. Um, but when I have my sort of ethnographer hat on, uh, the answer is probably whatever anyone says it is, you know, so I'm interested in uh, not going out and saying, well, I know that music must be this. Uh, I'm generally interested in, okay, what do these people over here think music is? Uh, And one of the nice effects of a graduate training in anthropology is that it sort of knocks out of your head a lot of those preconceptions that you might have about domains like this so that you can say, yeah, sure. I don't know what music is. I'm happy to go and hear someone else tell me what it is. And that's, and I do that not only for music, but for all sorts of other things too. Right. So uh, say taste is the kind of thing that people who build a recommender system might care about. Obviously the social sciences have a lot to say about what taste is. Uh, And if you go talk to, if you go talk to a sociologist, like I have done a fair amount during the course of this, because for whatever reason, anthropologists have historically not studied taste that much they'll say things like oh you know if only uh netflix would listen to us we could make their recommender system really good because sociologists really know what taste is and i always think you know i'm not sure that that's actually true because i'm think that netflix is sort of an institution and the people within netflix just to give an example they are going to have their own ideas about what taste is. They're going to have their own uh, sort of standards for what it means to succeed, what it means for Netflix to be good. Um, And I don't think that it's a guarantee that if they tried to implement a sociological theory of taste, whatever that is, and however you might choose to do it, that it would actually work better according to either their pre-existing definitions of better or two definitions that you might have come up with as better. So for me, it's always a question of, you know, how do people in their sort of ordinary lives uh, come up with ideas about the way the world works? How do they classify things? How do they label, how do they label the objects in their world? And how do those labels affect what they do. Uh, And as an anthropologist, what I try to do, although it's hard because we know that we're sort of culturally entrained, is to, to as much as I can, uh, give up my own restrictive, uh, Durkheim would have called them pre-notions, my own sort of restrictive ideas about what I'm going to find, uh, so that I can see uh, things that I didn't expect in the first place. So a lot of anthropological research is a bunch of tactics for becoming surprised, like do all of these things. And then finally, you might see something you didn't expect, because we know that almost everyone all around the world almost always just sees what they expect to see. That's sort of what culture is. Uh, And so what we try to do is to figure out a way to not do that. Yeah. So um, coming back to this um, recommended technologies into music, and um, if, if you would say like, what would be some form of categorization that you could do to kind of start defining the the foundation of, of that relationship that, that people build with music that could be somehow used at a certain point in an algorithm? And maybe before saying that, because you've talked quite, he- quite strongly about taste and sociology, do you think you could have a go at explaining to a non-anthropologist taste? Oh, my goodness. But yeah, really- we're just going to pile... Yeah, <laughs> yeah we can pile on. Um, yeah, so okay, we can, you want to do taste first? I think I can. I think I can knock out a quick one on on, on taste. Yeah, but but like uh, for non anthropological audience. Yeah. Right. So okay. So the sort of story we tell about taste uh, in the social sciences is that the the sort of like classic idea of taste, our starting our starting point, is that out there in the world there are aesthetic objects, you know, works of art, pieces of music that are intrinsically good. Uh, and if you have good taste, you will be able to identify what those are uh, and appreciate them. That's what 
we some people call the, that the Kantian idea of taste doesn't really matter. That's a that's a sort of classic theory of taste. Um, then fast forward, da, 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 uh, the twenty the twentieth century comes and you have a different idea, uh, sort of actually at the beginning of the twentieth century, which is that maybe the reasons that people like the things they like or what taste is don't have to do with qualities in the objects that they like, but have to do with qualities in the people who are doing the liking. Uh, and that's the beginning of a theory that is more or less the dominant one in the social sciences today, which is that taste is about social processes of distinction. So people who are high class will like fancy things and people who are low class will like not fancy things. If I said to you, you know, oh, uh, Ted really likes the opera and Mary really likes hip hop, you would have an idea about what kind of person Ted was and what kind of person Mary was, even though I haven't told you anything about their socioeconomic status or race or whatever. And that's the sort of like canonical move now. We often attribute that to Pierre Bourdieu, who's a sociologist who comes along later, really like an early 20th century thing. So that's the sort of current I think that's yeah. common sense. If we bring it back to Netflix, if I tell you that I like, I don't know, Westworld and uh, Stranger Things that would put me in a specific category um, of people that would have a specific taste that would say something about me that I want to say about myself, right? Yeah, right. So perfect. So we have mm -hmm. So we have, you can imagine now that Netflix, if Netflix got built at different moments in the history of the yeah. social sciences right? or the history of theories about taste. So if Netflix is built in, you know, uh, in that sort of first period that I mentioned, Netflix would try to score each uh, movie according to how good it was. Yeah. Just like how intrinsically good it was. Yeah. Uh, and then, okay, you want a recommendation? Let me just tell you what the best yeah. movie is. Like a Rotten movie. Tomato does it, right? Yeah, kind of like Rotten Tomatoes, uh, kind of like a Rotten Tomatoes uh, move, although there's some other weirdness going on in the way they sort of aggregate stuff, I suppose. But now if we do this other one, it, Netflix might say, okay, how about this? How about you just tell me, uh, tell me how much money you make yeah. or like tell me how, how big your house is yeah. uh, and I'll recommend you a movie on the basis of that. Yeah, uh, exactly. And so be this sort of early model. And then over the course of the 20th century, we have ideas of like, oh, hey, you know what? People are going to arbitrarily choose to like things. They're going to clump together in sort of arbitrary groups that so sometimes line up with mm -hmm. status and sometimes they don't. So, you know, uh, we have all of these people over here who really like, uh, let's say they really like a certain kind of pop music. They like uh, doo-wop or something like that. Um, and now you've got people who like doo-wop from sort of different, what you would have thought of as different uh, slices of society, um, but they can sort of hang together. And now once I identify you as a doo-wop liker, I might imagine that you like things that other people who like doo-wop also like. And that gets us a little bit closer to what we see in a sort of contemporary recommender system, right? Where we say, okay, I just need to know what kind of person you are. And before that meant like something about your demographics, maybe now it means something just about what you like. Like you just arbitrarily decided to like this and not that. Mm -hmm. um, and like, you know, maybe you like, uh, maybe you like heavy metal uh, or maybe you like experimental jazz. And I'm just going to find those, those groups yeah. of people. What's a little different now in the recommender system world is that that's become more fine-grained. So maybe you as an individual are completely unique. And so across different axes, you might like other things, right? So maybe you like experimental jazz and death metal. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to find people who like both of those things and try to find out what else they like to recommend those things to you because maybe you like that, maybe you like yeah. this.
that's sort of uh, my my thinking uh, and the thinking of how these the people who build these systems go. I'm interested in now the systems themselves. We've been starting with the theories. I'm interested in a recommender system itself as a kind of prototype of a theory of taste, right? So I can build a recommender system to correspond to some idea I have about why people like the music they like, but also sort of implicit in any recommender system, even if I didn't try to do it, um, there would be some idea about why people for music, for instance, why they like the music uh, uh, that they like. And that would range from things like they like the music that their friends like, or they like music because of how it sounds, or they like music because of how it sounds specifically in regards to these categories, or they like music because of how long the songs are, or whatever, right? You can sort of toss in anything you want. Okay, I just wanted to ask, because like this is a question we ask everyone, and I feel like when you're talking about categorizing people, this question would be relevant. But we usually talk about like the ethics in developing technology, and especially from like perhaps the companies that develop it and um, push it out to the customers sort of um, position. So I'd like to say, like, what type of um, issues do you see, or um, what's your thoughts on the issues, really, is my question. Uh, the, the ethical issues around recommenders? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so uh, the sort of typical uh, ethical issue around recommenders that you'll hear about sort of in the press is the filter bubble, mm-hmm. uh, right? The idea that if I try to uh, predict what you're going to like uh, and filter then what you see, uh, and this isn't only true on something like, you know, uh, Netflix or Spotify, but it's also true on, you know, Facebook or social media feeds that are personalized. I'm going to sort of shape the world that you're aware of around you and, uh, that's going to have all sorts of negative consequences ranging from in the social network setting that like you think that everyone agrees with you and you don't ever see anything that you disagree with. Uh, so you may never learn about other things. Uh, if you are prone to being radicalized by some kind of viewpoint that we think of as bad, mm. that might you might be more likely to end up in a little echo chamber yeah. of that. The, the, the terrible story uh, that came out most recently, there's always a sort of series of these, was that uh, Dylan Roof, who was the the mass shooter in the U.S., who uh, a white man who killed a bunch of African-Americans at a church, was searching Google for various racist key terms, finding the kinds of results that he expected to find because they were being personalized to him uh, and because the kinds of terms he was using were just showing up on these sites. And that was reinforcing this this sort of idea, right? Mm -hmm. So the sort of most negative consequence of personalization technologies tends to be uh, identified as this kind of like intensifying right it'll sort of intensify whatever you do in music it's not that clear that the like those kind of ethical concerns are a little bit muted right like in in a music recommender there are certainly consequences for artists who can and can't get recommended there's an argument that maybe it'll change the kind of music that people make right so people will make a different kind of music uh, if they notice that some other kind of music is becoming popular because it's getting recommended so maybe actually these systems are changing the cultural worlds that they work in but there's nothing like you know, no one is really having their life chances extremely affected by a music recommender, although I'm sure you could always find exceptions. Um, I was just wondering, because like, even with music, I know a lot of people with these algorithms are a bit uh, fearful of them because of like how they source their information, how they can track like what music they're watching and that. And even though it may be not important information, it's, I don't know, it gives them that weird feeling that they're being watched or tracked sort of. So what would you have to say to that? Yeah, that's a good point. There's a, so that's another another sort of ethical concern is that either they are surveillance and they they certainly are in at least a at least a restricted sense and sometimes maybe in more of a sense. Uh, you know, they are are keeping track of say what you're listening to. They might be keeping track of uh, your location or other 
things you might wish they didn't know about you. Uh, the argument that I've heard that maybe is the most persuasive is that they normalize surveillance, right? So they, so you say, oh, you know, it's not that bad. I don't care that a company like Spotify knows everything that I'm listening to because I get this result out of it. And maybe in that specific context, it's no big deal. But when you sort of transpose it into other domains, it becomes a bigger problem. Um, and I think that that's a reasonable concern. I think that there are um, that there are indeed problems about 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 surveillance there. Um, my because my work tends to focus on the people who build these systems. I'm interested in how, say, like an engineer working at a company like Spotify would think about ethics. And that's been kind of interesting to see because often they agree. Often the people who are working in these companies uh, agree with those general critiques, or they find certain kinds of profiling creepy, even though they understand them nominally better, right? They have a better technical sense. They know that, you know, they know that the software isn't like using the microphone to record what you say and then use and like somehow Mm. transcribing that and using that for recommendations. Um, Although an ordinary user might reasonably think that sure, maybe, maybe this company is secretly recording me. So even though they know about things like that, they, uh, they do still often say that they're worried about coming off as creepy. They find other kinds of surveillance in other domains creepy, and they want to find ways of producing recommendations that don't have those problems. I wanted to touch on that, but in the context of a different question, I think we've studied a bit this surveillance fear of information um, also here in New Zealand. And one of the things that we came up with is also the fact that at its uh, base, at its foundation, it's a lack of trust between that user and that company that they're approaching, you know, like they don't, they don't, they don't, they lack of trust, lack of familiarity. I mean, if you look at how we engage with, I think Google and Facebook are the ones that basically have know everything about us. And, you know, it's because they're so present in our everyday life. We don't really question that data that goes from us to them that much. Um, And I think there's something to be said about, you know, building that familiarity and that trust and that rapport between the company and the user um, before, you know, starting a process of intense information harvesting somehow. My actual question had to do um, with relationship between the user and the company and especially I think in the context of recommendations is interesting because before technology we get these recommendations and maybe even now we still get them from our networks right from our friends like that kind of right. says have you watched that is pretty cool have you seen this artist is pretty cool so which is based on you know getting to know each other knowing each other and knowing you as a person but you also knowing me as a person right so it's a kind of a mutual relationship, social relationship that, that sits at the foundation of that recommendation. Um, I was wondering, what is then that relationship? How much, of, the, how much of, of that relationship between the user and the engineer or the company um, goes both ways in constructing that kind of knowledge? And then my second question would have to do with agency. How much have you observed these users kind of exercising their agency against the recommended um, information or disrupting it or using it in a different way um, than it was designed to? Those are great questions. Um, The mutuality question is really interesting um, because I'm also, uh, in the course of doing this kind of work, when you talk to people who are building a recommender system, they'll do the same thing that you just did, which is they'll try to say, okay, well, what is the sort of history of, of recommendation as a thing, right? Like, what's the history of this product that we're making? What are we the next iteration of? And they pick different 
uh, historical comparison points, which is always uh, interesting for me to see. Like, for instance, there was someone who uh, I knew who did his PhD on playlists and on automatically generating playlists. And so he's got a little chapter right on, like, the history of the playlist. When's the first playlist? And you might say, okay, I don't know, the radio, like when people started making radios. And he suggests that actually the first playlist is when concerts in sort of the 19th century go from being a performance of work all by one composer who may have been playing the music themselves or conducting the orchestra that was doing it to a sort of collection of works by different composers. And so he says, okay, that's the first, that's the first like meaningful playlist. So what I'm doing is building the next step on a history from there. On the recommender front, if you, if you uh, talk to folks who work in like recommender systems, and this is a field that's sort of abstracted out from any specific domain. So they are nominally, these systems they build can work for movies or music or anything. They'll, like literally a talk that I saw, the guy said, okay, I'm going to tell you about the recommender systems. This is the, one of the people who sort of invented the contemporary recommender system in the mid nineties. He ended up helping build the recommender for Amazon, their first recommender system. And he said, okay, but before I start, I need to tell you a story about 20,000 years ago. 20,000 years ago, a couple cavemen are in a cave uh, and uh, there's this bush out in front of the cave and the bush has these red berries on it. And they're trying to figure out whether they could should eat the berries or not. And so they ask someone who knew someone who had tasted the berries whether the berries were edible or not. Uh, and he says that that is like the first recommender system. And when anthropologists hear stories like that, we're always fascinated because, I mean, one of the things that anthropology covers, uh, right, is prehistoric humans. And so this is a kind of like amateur anthropology story, right? This is like, yes, yeah. I'm going to be an, I'm going to be a kind of archaeologist or something like that. And then the other thing, right, is that when we hear stories, anthropologists in all domains hear these stories that try to take into account the entirety of human history, right? So you say like, before time began, a human did this, and then they did this. And these like archetypal sort of cosmological stories are things you find all around the world and you think you might not find them in like a tech domain. But of course, computer scientists love to give these like really old stories. So for me, I'm really interested in the, how recommender systems come to stand as like, they have a cosmology in kind of a literal sense, right? They are like the whole, everything you do could be understood as a kind of recommender system. And so when you say like, oh, you know, we used to ask our friends and we had this sort of mutual with our friends like I could recommend to them also in a way that you know when mm -hmm. Netflix says hey Nick you might like this movie I can't be thanks Netflix you might like this other yeah. movie right like, there's no uh, I think it's a great point that there is no back and forth like that but that when you get up to sort of like the contemporary moment what people say is different about recommender systems from what came just prior to them uh, a lot of the early uh, or a couple of the early uh, academic papers uh, inventing recommender systems in the mid 90s have names like automating word of mouth so they're trying to take what you were saying that people hear about things they'll like from other people and to try to make that happen automatically. And the reason you want that to happen automatically, at least in principle, is because if, if it happens automatically, then it's easier, it's faster, you can get more stuff. And it can happen at sort of larger scale is mm -hmm. the kind of argument they make. What they don't talk about so much is that recommending stuff to other people is a way that people sort of form social ties yes. uh, and that... There isn't, as far as I know, on the recommender side of things, a lot of research 
into that in detail, although there is a lot of talk on in the sort of industry space among people who make recommenders that what they want their users to think is like, okay, this company really gets me. Yeah. Like this company really understands me. And when 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 I say that, I don't mean in like a creepy way, like mm. they've seen into my brain, but in the same way that your friend is like, you know what, I know what you like, and then you trust them, yeah. like you're saying. Um, and building that kind of trust in the system is a big challenge for folks because they'll they'll do these studies where they generate playlists for people and say to the to the person who's getting the playlist, okay, this playlist was made by a human or it was made by a machine. And they'll lie, right? They sort of make it up. There's arbit randomly assign it. And people will report that they like the one that was made by a human more, even if it was actually made by a machine or made by an algorithm and vice versa. Yeah. Uh, and so there's this reality of taste, uh, at least at the present moment, where people don't trust algorithmic systems necessarily. And so you see very intentionally on the parts of some of these companies efforts to rebrand their systems as actually being human. So if early in the, you, you guys used to have Pandora Radio in New Zealand, didn't you? Yes. Uh, was, New Zealand was one of the one one of the few places outside of the U.S. that had it temporarily, licensing reasons. But they um, Pandora Radio, which is a personalized radio company, has this music genome project, which is a system for tagging music to figure out what's similar to what. And it's very scientific in quotation marks. And they used to advertise that as their sort of selling point. So like we're going to use science to figure out what you like. And now lately, that's not been so much of a selling point. People are saying, you know, no, science can't understand me. Science can't understand my tastes. And so now what you'll see is something like uh, Spotify, for instance, mm. has this Discover Weekly feature, which is a playlist that gets generated for you every week that's supposed to have music that's kind of at the limits of your of your current taste, as far as they know from what you're listening to. And the line that was going around when they launched it, when the sort of product manager who uh, worked on that product was sort of doing promotional stuff, he said that this system is based on playlists made by other users. So what we say is, okay, who... If I, you listen to song A, when users put song A in a playlist, they also put song B in that playlist. So here, we'll play, give you song yeah. B, which you never heard before. Um, and so he said that that system is humans all the way down, which is funny for anthropologists because that all the way down is one of our sort of like verbal ticks that we like to use. Yeah. But also human. He's saying that this system is, sure, there's like an algorithm that helps see what playlist is what, but the data and like all of that is humans. And so that's supposed to get you to trust that what you're getting isn't something from Spotify, but something from your peers. And maybe as yeah. a result, you're going to have some trust, maybe not in Spotify, the company, yeah. um, but in the, your fellow Spotify users, even though you don't know who they are. Yeah. Right. That's that's, I think, one of the goals. Yeah, I think that that sociality aspect, it's it's quite interesting to go deeper into. I, I've seen it very much with, for example, with Goodreads, um, when you're kind of um, they have a, a feature which kind of integrates, I think, with Facebook, and they recommend you books based on what your friends like and friends like you. So they also try to tap into the sociality of recommendations uh, where they kind of connect you to your own network and their own tastes, which is very interesting because when it comes to books, you know, and, you know, this fast-paced life that we're living nowadays, I don't get to ask my friends, I mean, not a lot of them, okay, so what book have you been reading lately? You know, I, I ask a few of them, but not many. And that's kind of like an interesting, um, it, it's an interesting thing the way they, uh, Goodreads is doing it, but they're basically a platform where all the recommendations, I think, are mostly network generated, so by by real people. I don't know if, if they use algorithms. Yeah, so I think that sociality aspect is it's quite interesting. And it takes me to kind of another question, which is um, 
let me see how I phrase it in a non-anthropological maybe way. It reminded <laughs> me, do you know a Maffesoli's theory? So Maffesoli is this, is this cool Italian dude that, that wrote um, a theory around temporary tribes um, and how people come together through music and they experience a social bond in a kind of a ritualized way through music. And it made me think about Maffesoli because of an article I read about him where he talked about the contextual power um, that sits behind our decision to, to engage with a piece of music or not. And human beings, when we are looking at each other, we, we kind of feel more than just what, what the other one is saying. So we kind of feel the context, we feel the mood. And when we give a recommendation, oh, you might enjoy that music, it, it doesn't necessarily have to do with the diagnostic of the personality, but also of that specific emotional context that the person is going through that is very difficult I think to put into an algorithm um, so directly you know because music is used for something um, and that what is that something that you need in that particular moment um, Maffesoli argued in that article has so much to do with the context of your experience right then and there and a person can you know maybe doesn't know that he's doing it but he's doing it you know when we're kind of, oh, so you're feeling like this. Maybe you should watch this book, watch this movie, read this book, listen to this guy, you know? So I was wondering if you can speak a bit to the context and, you know, how do these programs kind of try to guess not just the choices that you make, but the context in which they are made and how, how does that piece of music contribute to that context? Yeah, that's a perfect question. Maffasoli is an interesting character. I probably don't want to get into it too much for, for the lack of, for not doing too much theory. There is a sort of history of people talking about digital technologies using those kind of terms, right? So neo-tribalism, secondary orality. And there's a, there's a whole host of sort of usually kind of problematic language that pops out in the sort of late 90s into the present that's like, oh, you know what's happening now? Uh, modern people are becoming like pre-modern people. And anthropologists often get sort of hives around this kind of thing just because they're usually based on pretty lousy ideas about what pre-modern quote-unquote people are like. And they're fairly essentializing about that. So often neo-tribalism is going to tell you more about what, you know, someone in Europe thinks about Europe than yes. any other part of the world. So to get that out of the way, but I think there is this question of context, though, is a huge one. And it's a big critique of, um, of big data applications more generally, right, which is that the kinds of data that go into these systems are, the critique goes, are decontextualized, right? So I don't know something like, I, the example I give in, when I teach this in my classes is if Spotify, for instance, knows that I listened to uh, Oops, I Did It Again by Britney Spears, they don't know about my life. They don't know what's happening to me right now. Uh, they don't know why I'm doing it. All they know is that, you know, this user account that we associate with this guy played Britney Spears at this time. And they probably know some other things about sort of like, you know, what computer I'm on or what part of the interface I played it from or that kind of thing. And what is interesting to me about this problem is that recommender systems researchers in academia and in industry are actually obsessed with context. It's a thing that critics are like, you need to take context into account. You can't, uh, you know, you don't do it. They're like, yeah, we definitely care a lot about context. But what happens is that the critics and the people who try to implement something so that their systems can care about context sort of end up speaking past each other. Um, I actually have an, an, an article about this, <laughs> about this topic called The Nice Thing About Context is That Everyone Has It. Uh, but the idea is that when we, identifying now as a, as a, a social critic, uh, say, you, you big data people, need to take context into consideration, what do we mean? And we usually mean something like, you need to take my social 
setting into account. You need to take into account this sort of outside stuff that's not in the data that you have. Now flip that around and look at a recommender system. So contextual recommendation is an active research field. What it often means is that, like I said, Nick Seaver played, oops, I did it again just now, is we don't know anything else about it. But using context, maybe we can sort of infer something else. When uh, engineers start to think about context, what they usually do first is they usually try to append a location and a time to the data. So they'll say, okay, Nick, listen to oops, I did it again at this time. And maybe if I got his GPS coordinates from his phone at this place. And that's what context is for them. Now, if I'm a social science critic, again, I'm saying that's not context. That's a GPS coordinate. You still don't whether like you don't know whether I'm like with my friends. And even if you do know that I'm with my friends, like if you have their GPS coordinates, uh, you don't know anything about my feelings right now. Right. Right. And so what you realize is that when when we as critics talk about context, we sort of don't mean the kind of thing that you can take into account. We always mean that thing that's outside yeah. that you can never get, right? It is yeah. never possible for one of these systems to take into account my context because there will always be yeah. some outside of the data. Um, and that's something that I think is important for us to recognize as critics because we don't, we're not asking a question that can be answered. Yeah. Right? And that's okay. That's a, we, you might say like, yep, that's just a limitation. You'll never get it. Yeah. Um, but we shouldn't pretend that we're saying like, oh, if only they really took our context into account as though they could just add that into the system. Because yeah. I don't think they can, at least not in the way that we mean it usually. I wonder if, if that wouldn't be a good link into agency and the power of the people to kind of engage with a with a technology in a way that it's more symbiotic rather than, mm-hmm. you know, just being a receptacle for stuff. Because I think that context, you're right. I mean, context is not something that you can um, know completely. You can get closer to it, but you, then you, you become extremely creepy and you kind of, you know, maybe <laughs> you, need, you need a highly degree of trust um, for people to really consider that very good, but maybe not even then. But that's why I think my question was kind of, because coming back to the topic of agency that I was discussing earlier, I think it's very important to kind of, look into those two concepts kind of together. And that would lead into the question of how do these engineers develop these products? Do they account for agency in any way? Would they see agency as something positive? Yeah, how do they do that from your experience? Yeah, so that's a good question. Again, yeah, I'm in an interesting spot to talk about this kind of stuff because my, you know, I didn't study any users, right? So I studied just the engineers, which is not usually where anthropologists are in these in these settings. But uh, yeah, so the big, let's say that the big distinction that exists and certainly I think it still exists. It existed at the time when I was doing my, my research, which was now a couple of years ago. It was the difference between two kinds of users, um, between what was called the sort of the lean back user and the lean forward user. These are two sort of prototype users. They're, they're not really even personas. They're kind of a generic idea about the way people listen. Uh, the lean forward listener wants to do stuff. They want to interact with the system. They want to be sort of have agency, basically, right? They want to, like, make decisions. And you would associate that kind of activity with someone who is a big music fan, right? Someone who, like, wants to put in effort to find new music. And now, because we're, we're social beings, you can imagine what kind of person you would expect to have those kind of traits, right? There are stereotypes about what a... Yeah music nerd is like. Okay, and then a lean back listener would be someone who does not want to put any effort into into finding music. They would like to sort of hit a button, have music play, and then not have to do anything about it. Now, what 
you might say, and what I said at first is that's like, you know, a stereotype, like people don't have to be that or th- that or that. And yes, they agree. And to bring go back to context, uh, what people usually say now is that in certain settings and and for certain activities that you listen to music with, you may be one way or the other, right? So if you're at the gym, you would like a lean back experience. If you are sitting at the computer and just like killing time on the weekend, maybe you want to like explore. So to go back to the, the Discover Weekly example, that playlist, Discover Weekly, is a lean forward thing, even though it's sort of a recommended playlist for you because it's not really intended to be like a good coherent listening experience all the way through it's intended to sort of make you feel like you're crate digging a little bit right like you're going to look to use another another sort of old reference um, for finding music so um, in terms of agency there's this idea that you know users at various times and maybe different kinds of people want to be exercising their agency or not during these these moments and a recommender system can certainly facilitate your exercise of agency in the sense of saying, you know what, God, I really want to find more music like this, and I don't know how, maybe at system, tell me. Or the opposite, say, you know, I really want to hear some music right now, but I, I'm tired, I don't want to pick anything. Oops, I did it again, play me Britney Spears radio, whatever, right? So that's the kind of thing that that you would have just sort of by default. And I think that that's the common sense in the, in the companies making these things. Now, this is in music in particular, I should say, because music gets listened to in a different way than something like a movie gets watched yeah. or uh, a Facebook feed gets scrolled through. And that's kind of important because, you know, a movie, generally speaking, isn't getting watched in the background. And in music, if you're listening to music in the background, that's like a lean back kind of experience. Right? I don't want to play with my music while I'm writing in the morning, right? I just want to hear it. Whereas a movie... I'm going to probably only be watching that movie. I'm probably not going to be, I maybe that's not true, but in theory, I'm going to be only watching that movie. And yet a critic, a critique of that would be like, you know, the movie has got your attention in its vice grip much more than music does, or like uh, your Facebook feed has really got your attention in a way that music doesn't. And so you actually have nominally like more agency while listening to music in the background than you do while having your sort of uh your full attention occupied by the facebook feed and so you can start to see that this gets complicated and strange and we don't really have a good way of talking about it and i think that agency in some ways is a tricky concept to even use here because again to go back to anthropological definitions it's not always clear what it means i think that that agency is in one anthropological sense it's a it's kind of a story that people tell themselves about having uh, effects on the world. And you can have that story, whether or not, quote unquote, actually having effects on the world. Um, And so it matters whether someone feels like they have agency or not, even if everything else appears to be the same. And it's not always clear, like, what gives you your agency, right? Because you might say, no, if if something has to give you your agency, it's not really agency. But we have all sorts of interesting theories in anthropology about the sort of interconnectedness of something like, you know, uh, technology and people and society that allow certain people to act at certain times and in certain ways and disallow other people. So like my ability to exercise my agency depends on all sorts of stuff that isn't just me. And so these systems exist in that world. They don't exist in a world where like, before technology, I could do anything. I was just myself. And now Facebook has like clamped me down, right? It's like, no, it's possible for Facebook and other technologies to facilitate the sort of the, the social web, so to speak. I mean that, sorry, I mean social web in a not on the internet sense, facilitate like sort of society yeah. in a way that um, makes certain kinds of agency possible rather than stopping it. And that sounds complicated, but I think it's actually not. I think that if you think about your agency as being completely dependent on 
external supports, then you actually are going to have a better chance of understanding what makes people feel like they have agency and actually letting them do stuff rather than depending on their own whatever. You've been spending a lot of time with engineers, right, from what you've been speaking so far. Um, and I wonder if you can speak a bit to our listeners of how they perceive the value of anthropology in, in the field that you're working with and what has been your experience in kind of working together, coming from such a kind of a different world. Yeah. Um, also, we should say, right, the, the sort of like stereotypical thing that an anthropologist does for engineers in a tech company is uh, goes and does user studies, right? We help them understand their users. Um, so it took a long time for me to explain to many people that that was not what I did, that I was studying them. And in anthropology, we have this classic problem. Uh, we call it studying up. But people who are in a sort of high prestige position are like, why study me? Like, I'm not strange or interesting. Actually, everyone is strange, right? Like, I, I can study I can study you. You are definitely uh, just as weird as you think other people are. Uh, and just as interesting. And so trying to explain that was one thing. But the other thing was that, you know, my goal as a researcher was not to make their systems work better. Um, and it wasn't to find out what made a recommender system good. Uh, it was to find out what people who made recommender systems thought, how that those thinkings related to the stuff that they built. Uh, because not to make the systems better, but because those systems were becoming influential. Uh, and I thought that it mattered uh, how these people thought about things like taste, right? Because if they think about taste this way, the system's going to work this way. And all of a sudden, the music that you get recommended is going to come out this other way than it was going to before. Uh, so it actually matters how these people think about uh, the world. But what I found through the course of research, and this is, again, a story that you hear in sort of more traditional anthropological field sites, not just in sort of high-tech ones, is that... Um, sort of the talk with an anthropologist gives people a chance to reflect on their own lives at a sort of and their work uh, at a length and to a depth that they don't often get to do it. And that's fun for me because I get to, you know, hear people talk about their work and people love to talk about their work and to think these deep thoughts, uh, especially when they don't get to do it as a matter of course. And I think that like, giving people that opportunity really does help them make different and hopefully better choices when they're when they're sort of deciding what to do with their systems. So I often had people I interviewed sort of later on be like, oh, I felt like I was talking to a therapist or something like that, uh, which is an interesting, you know, I'm like a therapist, except I'll tell other people what you said, uh, which is uh, just different. Um, but there, there was that sense where that was sort of useful. And you would get people asking me questions. They'd say, like, okay, here's an anthropology question for you. And I was always really interested to hear, like, okay, what are they going to ask? Because what do they think? Well, you know, what do they think I do? And it was almost always something like, uh, at the time that I was doing field work, this was when the big tech companies in Silicon Valley were releasing their diversity numbers. It was a sort of a, um, a scandal that turned into a set of PR pushes by different companies to say, okay, here are the numbers. Like, here is the percent of women. Here is the percent of minorities in our um, in our company. And even if the numbers were bad, it was worse to not release them. So there was this thing going on. And so people would ask me questions like, here's an anthropology question. How do we get more women to come to our hackathon? Uh, and that's a sort of stand, you know, that's sort of what you would expect that uh, we actually didn't get a chance to talk about this too much, but that the social or the cultural does get carved off from the technical by all sorts of people. Anthropologists do this too, actually. But like this idea that, okay, and a real anthropology problem is we need some women in here just because like, you know, what people say we do, and that's a culture thing. And, you know, I'm thinking that's, 
not only a culture thing, that's a technology thing, because people who come from different social positions are going to have different ideas. These cosmologies I was talking about before, they're going to have different ideas about the way the world works. Uh, and that's actually going to change the kinds of choices that they make when they build these systems. Not all engineers are the same. And so what's interesting to me is that recommender systems folks, more so than I think people in other technical domains that I've talked to, understand that they understand that in a way that is a little bit like mirror universe for anthropologists it's like not quite how we would like them to understand it but they think they say you know what it matters that i am you know i'm from this country and someone else is from that other country because we know the music of our different countries better than each other so we can tell when our system is working better and for instance you know our recommender system is really bad at recommending country music because nobody here likes country and so we don't know like from the get-go, we don't know if our system is doing a bad job on country music until we get it to people outside the company, which takes some time. And maybe people who like country music like it in a different way than we like the music that we like. And so if you go to that sort of meta pattern, right, like maybe we talked about what does it mean, we know what is taste, maybe taste is different for different kinds of people. And maybe taste is different in different technical situations. And so that would be a sort of closing thing for me is that, um, this question about what taste is, if you imagine yourself 150 years in the past before recorded music existed, what it meant to have taste in music was a very different thing than it was 50 years ago when it meant you went to the record store and picked out a record. Taste was like, of all these records that are the same shape and they are about the same cost, which of them do I want? Right In that case, all you're picking is you know the, 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 the artist. And now again, with, with streaming, we should expect that what it means to have taste in the first place is going to change because these sort of technical supports that are part of how people find the music that they like, how they come to like it, they're different. And that's not because technology is impacting society, but rather the opposite. It's because society is sort of in technology already. Technology and society are uh, very much the same thing as far as I'm concerned. Okay, well, I'd like to say first, thank you so much for coming on here. Talking to you has been wonderful. Me and Karina have really enjoyed listening to you. And the next, I would like to say to our listeners that we will put all your work up on the thing so that they can engage further with it and, yeah, really get into it. So thank you for being here. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Nick. (laughs) Have a great day. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. Check our social media, our website, and worldpodcast.com for other interesting content. Don't forget to come back next Tuesday for more interesting conversations.